Hello. Thank you for inviting me into your eardrums. I'm Sarah Wendell from Smart Podcast Trashy Books. This is episode number 413. And today I am speaking with historical romance legend Mary Balog. Yes, my inner 13-year-old was really not very chill about this. I was very excited. This was recorded by phone, so the audio is a little bit different, but we are going to talk about her newest book, Someone to Romance, and her re-releases of older Regencies, including her latest, Truly, which is based on some really interesting Welsh history. We also talk about writing an ongoing series, found family, and what books she's loving lately. I want to thank Elise, Claudia, Aria, Regency Fan, and Debbie for their input, care, and questions, and to the Patreon community for being so excited about this interview. I will have links to all of the books, all of them, do not worry, in the show notes at smartbitchestrashybooks.com slash podcast. This episode is brought to you by Crushing It by Lorelai Parker. This is a new romantic comedy from a debut author, and it combines humor, second chances, and learning that the key to love can only be found in first loving oneself. In life, as in gaming, there is a way around every obstacle. To pitch her new role-playing game at a European conference, developer Sierra Reed needs to overcome her fear of public speaking. What better practice than competing in a local bar's diary slam, regaling an audience with old journal entries about her completely humiliating college crush on gorgeous Tristan Spencer? It seems like a good idea, until the moderator says, next up, Tristan Spencer. Sierra is mortified but Tristan is flattered and caught up in memories of a decades-old obsession as they reconnect. Sierra tries to dismiss her growing qualms about him, but it's really not easy to ignore her deepening friendship with Alfie, the cute and supportive bar owner. Maybe the winning strategy is to start playing by her heart. This book is perfect for fans of Christina Lauren and Sally Thorne. Crushing It is on sale now wherever books are sold, and you can find out more at kensingtonbooks.com. This episode is also brought to you by Ritual, a daily multivitamin that is obsessively researched for women. It is vegan-friendly, sugar-free, non-GMO, gluten-free, and allergen-free. And all of the sources for the nine nutrients inside are provided for you to read and research on your own. You deserve to know what you're putting in your body and why, which is why Ritual's founder is on a mission to reinvent the vitamin industry. They're committed to showing you the nutrients, where they came from, and why they chose them. They call it traceability. Ritual is designed to be an easy way to build a daily vitamin ritual. I really like that it's easy. I like that a new bottle is delivered right when I finish the old one, and I really like the fact that I know exactly what is in each capsule and why it's there. I like knowing the source for everything. I think it's a writer thing. And I also like that it never makes me nauseated. Daily changes can lead to big results. That is true. So start small today. Ritual is offering you 10% off your first three months. Try it out. Satisfaction guaranteed. Go to ritual.com forward slash Sarah, S-A-R-A-H, to start your ritual today. That's 10% off during your first three months at ritual.com slash Sarah. Hello, thank you, Patreon community, for making this episode so much fun. If you would like to join our Patreon community, you will find out about interviews I have scheduled and be able to help me shape questions and deliver compliments to the authors I'm interviewing. If you would like to join, have a look at patreon.com slash smartbitches. Monthly pledges start at $1, and every pledge keeps the show going and makes sure that every episode is accessible to everyone. So thank you for your support. I will end this book with a terrible joke. I might even end it with two because I have two and I can't choose. So you might get an extra bonus joke this week. Probably you will because, well, well, I have no self-control in this department, but I don't think that you expect me to either. (laughs) I will also have links to all the books and to Mary's site where you can find all of her interconnected series. I also want to extend a very special thank you to Brittany Black, who is the publicist at Penguin Random House who helped me arrange this interview. She went above and beyond and is a pleasure to work with. I don't know if you've ever interacted with any of the publicists at Penguin Random House, but they're pretty flippin' fabulous. So thank you, Brittany, for making this episode possible. Shall we do this thing? Let's do this thing. On with my conversation with Mary Balog. Oh, I'm Mary Balog. I grew up in Wales. I now live in Canada. 
I've been writing historical romance since, well, I was first published in 1985. Um, I live in a small town in Saskatchewan, Canada, with my husband. I have three grown children, five grandchildren, four great-grands. Anything else? That should wow. be cover it, I think. That is quite a lot. Did you say 1986? 1985. I was 1985. Yes. So it's been a it's little a bit. Time. It has. I was still teaching at that time. I taught for 20 years. What did you teach? Uh, high school English. Surprise, oh, well, surprise. <laughs> yeah, that works. It's an yes. easy transition. Are characters a little easier than high school students? Definitely. <laughs> Mind you, sometimes they try to take over, but... Uh, it's easier just to delete what they say if you don't like it. <laughs> I have a high school age son. I'm going to have to try that. I don't think it'll work. <laughs> <laughs> no, it won't. <laughs> Take my word for it. It won't. Oh, all right. Well, you have so many books out this year. Your website, organized by year, by the way, the books released by year is a fabulous way to organize because um, I'm sure you're aware you have a lot of books. Congratulations. Uh, thank you. <laughs> now, I know that someone, yeah, there's a few. I, I know that Someone to Romance is out in late August, and truly, it just came out end of June, right? Yes. Congratulations. Yes, um, thank you. Does releasing a new book ever get old? I'm guessing it doesn't, but does it ever, does it ever get old? No, it doesn't. I suppose at the beginning, the the excitement of seeing a book with your name on it, you know, seeing a cover and is, um, you know, a real high. And and I don't exactly um, get that sort of high any longer, but it still is, um, you know, it it still is a wonderful feeling when you see a new book and and say, gosh, I wrote that. No, it, it never pulls, no. No, I'm sure. I know that Truly was just re-released. And first, when I looked it up online, the print copies were like $300. Oh, well, yes. I I can't imagine anyone ever pays those amounts. I'm sure. (laughs) But yes, I see that myself. Yes. That must be really shocking. It is, yes. But I guess it shows how people who want to complete a library of a favorite author will go to any lengths when the books are out of print. Wow. Now, I know that Truly was originally released in 1996, and it was probably written prior to that, but do you remember what led you into that story, and could you tell people a little bit about it? Um, I was moving from um, just writing Regency romances into writing other types of historicals. I was experimenting at the time, and I really wanted to set a few books in, in my native Wales. Um, and there, there were a couple of historical events in the 19th century in Wales that uh, particularly spoke to my heart. Uh, you know, they were the Welsh, the downtrodden Welsh people fighting against um, the English oppressors. Um, The one movement was in the 1830s, and that was the Chartist movement, which really affected the industrial workers and the coal miners of Mm -hmm. South Wales. And so I set one book um, there. It's a book called Longing, one of my favorites. And then the other movement was what's known as the Rebecca Riots of Welsh Wales. And they centered around the... um, the oppression of the Welsh. And it it came to a real head with the erection of lots of toll gates uh, that really affected people's income and ability to travel around. And so there were were groups of people who got together, very topical actually for what's happening right now, the the protesters, but they went around at night uh, pulling down the toll gates and they were led by a sort of mythical character. Each group was led by a mythical character who was a man dressed up as a woman called Rebecca. Uh, and 
it, it's a very romantic sort of notion, and also it dealt with a, a history I could get really passionate about. So those two books uh, are amongst my favourites, and uh, really show my Welshness and my uh, my passion for my Welshness. I think. When you re-release the the books that are um, coming out digitally, do you? edit them? Do you read through them? And do you make changes? One of my writers, uh, one of my reviewers, Aria, was very curious about that. I don't make many changes. And there are a few reasons. Uh, One is that I think people who try to revise books that they wrote 20, 30 years ago, um, don't generally improve them quite the opposite. Uh, It's like the old Bible story about trying to patch up Um, an old wine bottle with new material, uh, the wine bottle ends up bursting. Um, It just doesn't work. And so that's one reason. And another reason is that I want to spend my time writing new books. Mm -hmm. And I don't want to spend a lot of time rewriting old books. So I I do make a few changes. You know, if if I've learned an historical fact that I got wrong, in a book, well, I'll make that correction. And a few other little touches, perhaps I'll omit something or change something. But it it never involves more than a word or a sentence or two. Basically, the books are as I wrote them. They, They have to stand for themselves, even if they're not quite the book I would write now if I were writing that book. It must be quite an experience to look over the, the older material and sort of see your past writing self. And, and I imagine you yes. see changes. I do, yes. I was actually surprised. My very old books I hadn't read for years and years before they started to come out as e-books again. And I really thought I hadn't changed. But I have. And I think my earlier books were much more wordy (laughs) is the word that comes to mind. Uh, A lot of introspection with the characters and long paragraphs. Right now, when I'm writing and revising, I'll spot those sections and uh, cut them up and cut them out, cut a lot. I call it verbiage, you know, cut the verbiage, Mm -hmm. I tell myself. But the old books have it. And... uh, Sometimes I get impatient with my old self and I think, oh, come on, get on with the story. (laughs) But uh, I leave it as it is. How do you decide which ones you're going to release? Both Debbie and Claudia asked me to ask you about this. I have so many people who are so excited for this interview and I have questions from lots of different people. But Debbie and Claudia specifically were so curious. What's the process like for you to decide which ones you're going to reissue? Well, I want them all to come out again as fast as possible, every last one of them. So it's not really a question of just picking out which ones I want to see published again. It's just the order in which they're to be published. And sometimes it's random. Um, Sometimes I'll try to have a, a shorter Regency romance and a longer historical released in the same year, perhaps, for a bit of variety. Or if books are connected in any way, even if they're not literally a series, if they have some overlapping characters, I'll perhaps try to put those together so that that's more obvious to readers. Some favorites, I suppose, I put first, and perhaps ones that I that are no longer real favorites of mine, I left until last. Um, <laughs> But, you know, generally speaking, it was fairly random because I want them all to get out there sooner or later. Yes, you have quite a backlist. What, yes. were, what yes. were some of your favorites that you, that you wanted to re-release? I have such fond memories of reading A Certain Magic on an airplane and forgetting that I was on an airplane while I read it. Oh, so, hey, thank oh, you thank for that. <laughs> it <laughs> is one you. of my favorites. What are some of your oh, favorites? Right. Um, I always always liked uh, the first snowdrop, and then that's related to the Christmas book, um, Christmas Bell. Um, I've always been very fond of those two. And then I've liked the series, like the series that start with Dark Angel, and it went through Lord Carew's Bride, which tends to be a reader favorite. 
and plumed bonnets and, um, oh, there's a Christmas one. I get the Christmas titles mixed up. A Christmas Bride, I think it is. So that's, uh, that's, that's a favorite. When you look over the older titles, do, does your, do, do you recognize your writing? Do you remember the story? Or are you sort of surprised by your, by your past writing sometimes? Well, in most cases, I remember the story, or at least in outline, even if I've forgotten details. But I must confess that I have read one or two of my older books, and they're completely new to me. <laughs> I have, you know, I'm reading them, and I have no idea what's going to happen. And sometimes I, I get a bit anxious, thinking, oh, dear, I hope she's not going to do this. I hope she won't do that. And it's such a relief if I discover that she didn't do this or that. But I can't remember. Uh, that doesn't happen too often. I, I bet there are one or two titles that's completely new to me. Yes. It's a horrible thing to admit. It's a real elder moment. Oh, no. I, I don't recognize my own writing a lot of the time. And ah, okay. I'm routinely surprised by my own writing. Like, oh, past Sarah. Well done. Yeah, yes. Yes. It's a nice feeling, isn't it? Just mm-hmm. to look back and think, oh, did I write that? How nice. Yes. <laughs> yes exactly. <laughs> so you mentioned, can you tell, talk a little bit about Someone to Romance and what, what that book is about? For anyone who's familiar with the Westcott series, it's book number eight. Woohoo. Um, and, the, and the heroine is Jessica, uh, Jessica Archer, Lady Jessica Archer who's the daughter of um, a Duke of Netherby, but the present Duke of Netherby is her half-brother, and he's the hero of the first book, Someone to Love. Jessica is the daughter of a, of a Westcott who married the Duke of Netherby. Um, she's connected with all the Westcotts, and uh, from the start, I intended her to have her own book, and this is it. I know that from your blog, you do a lot of research into the historical details that are happening around the characters. Although you said, of course, not everything makes it into the book because that would be, what was the term you used? It would be a lot of verbiage. Yeah, yeah, if all that research got in there. Yes. Um, yes. With Someone to Romance, were there any details or historical bits that you learned that you didn't include or that you really liked including? Um. There was very little in that book. In in fact, most of the research I've done is in the past because all my books are set in the same historical period. So unless I'm doing something specific like the Battle of Waterloo, for example, Mm -hmm. um, I don't have to do a great deal of research. But the hero of Someone to Romance has spent 13 years of his life, I believe it is, in America, in Boston, Mm -hmm. Um, and he's only just returned or just returning at the start of this book. And he was a, he was a merchant businessman, got very wealthy in Boston. And I thought, well, if I'm using that detail, I'd better know a little bit about Boston and make sure that what he was doing there is, seems authentic for the place. So I can't say I delved hugely, you know, in great depth into the history of Boston, but I, I did a little bit, enough, I did a bit, enough to, to feel that confident that, yes, what he says about his life there and what happened there is, is believable. But I didn't include much of it in the book. I didn't have to, but um, I always like to think that if people question it, I could say, well, yes, I researched this and such and such did happen or whatever. So no one like walks around and gives you a quiz on your characters. What were they doing on this stage or anything like that? Not very often. Well, that's good. If people do question, question details, something happened recently. Something's niggling at my mind, but it won't come. It won't step up. It was something to do with the Battle of Waterloo, actually, that a reader questioned it and said, this is wrong. So I went back to my history books. And uh, proved to her, to her that, in fact, it was not wrong. It was right. I was right. So it's nice to be able to do that. It's reassuring. Yes. And mind you, sometimes readers are correct. Oh, of course. Sometimes they come at me with a, with a detail I got wrong, and I look it up and admit to them, yes, you're right. I was wrong. Hmm, I'll correct it, and won't, it won't happen again. <laughs> <laughs> 
I know that one of the most poignant parts of, of Subone to Romance is how much Jessica misses her best friend and how much that motivates a, a lot of her actions. She just wants to be with her friend Abigail. Like she misses yes. her friend deeply. What do you think are some of the elements to, to writing a really emotionally resonant friendship like that in the story? Being a writer of romance, my instinct is to concentrate on the love story between the hero and heroine. Mm-hmm. But that I've learned you know, through time and experience. That makes for a very, what I call, thin book, just a thin thread. Um, and I do believe, and I talk about this quite a few t- times in my blogs and any talks I give, um, love is such a rich emotion. It pervades everything. And I try to get as much of it into my books as I possibly can, not just the romantic love. And friendship is an obvious one. Of course. Um, and in this case, it's not just a friendship, but the, the two of them, Abigail and Jessica, are first cousins. Uh, Jessica grew up almost as an only child because her half-brother was already just about grown up when she was born. Abigail does have a sister and brother, but Jessica loved being with them so much, and Abigail was close to her in age, so they were very, very close friends, and it carried through their lives. It was family love, and it was it was friendship at the same time, and um, because love is so love in all its manifestations is so important to me. I think it's easy for me to get passionate about even friendships not just the romantic relationships. And it's not as if, you know, humans only have one relationship in their life. No, no. We have lots of different ones. Yes, that's right. Do you have advice for anyone who's thinking of writing uh, a romance and wants to include not just the romantic relationship, but friendships for the characters as well? Well, I think that. For me, writing is all about character, plot, mm-hmm. and all the rest of it are, you know, just what you hang the uh, the love story on. Mm-hmm. Um, and and to to write believable characters, you have to get deep, 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 deep into them. You have to become them. You have to know what it feels like to be that person. You have to know everything about them, right down to the level of their soul. And um, if you're doing that. For your main characters, your hero and heroine, it it somehow rubs off on minor characters as well. You can't have these really deep, rich main characters and just little cardboard cutouts to fill the rest of the scene. Uh, Gradually, you get to know the other characters more and more. And, uh, And then the relationships of the main characters to their family and friends and parents and grandparents and their pets. <laughs> mm-hmm. it, it, all, it all gains enrichment as the story grows. And I think that would, that would be my, I, my main advice to writers, is to, to write a rich tapestry. Don't be content with just, um, with just a sort of light romance against a stage background. Um, that, that's, that, that's to create the sort of story I write. Mm-hmm. There can be all sorts of stories of, of other types. We're all different. But to write my type of book, you have to get into character and then spread it ar- around through the book. But at the same time, make sure the main focus is on the hero and heroine. Otherwise, you lose that romantic connection with your reader. Have you always wanted to write romance? Well, Right from the time I was a small child, I wanted to be a writer. When people asked me what I wanted to be when I grew up, I used to say I wanted to be an author. Um, And I wrote long, long stories as a child. Now, obviously, they weren't romances. I didn't know anything about romance in those days. But they are what would be known as romantic comedy. You know, it was stories of adventure and friendship and everything ended happily ever after. So I think, you know, even then, before I knew about romantic love, uh, that's what I wanted to write. I wanted to make readers happy. 
uh, in what I wrote. So I think the, it was a natural progression to end up writing romance. Do you ever think about uh, finding some of the stories you wrote as a child and releasing those as ebooks? Oh, I wish. <laughs> I wish I had kept some of them. I, I really do. They were long, long stories. Readers don't mind, I promise. <laughs> no, no, but uh, they, they didn't survive my childhood, unfortunately. Oh. I'm not a pack rat, and my mother obviously wasn't either. So, no, they didn't survive. Oh. Yes, I know. I would love to read them. Yeah. <laughs> now, Elise asked me to ask you that about how many of your heroines are a little older and they have a little bit more life and world experience, both good and not so great, by the time their stories begin. Is that something you gravitate towards as, a, as, as you develop a character? Well, certainly now it is because I'm older myself. Uh, in fact, I find it very difficult to write young characters. I do. Some of my characters are very young. Mm-hmm. But I find it difficult. And very often I find that they are a bit wise beyond their years. Um, you know, trying to make them believable as young characters I find trickier because, as I was saying a little while ago, I like to have rich characters. Yes. And... Uh, you know, rich, a rich character comes from experience, which, which doesn't mean that you're, you're, you're empty-headed and just all fluff when you're 18 years old. But by the time you're 36 or 46 or 56, then you, you, you've gained experience and wisdom and, um, to me, are much more interesting and believable to write about. Mm-hmm. So, yes, I do gravitate to uh, older characters. Although I, I, I like variety, I don't ever want to be accused of writing the same character over and over again. I, I want them all to be different. I don't think that's what's going to happen. That's um, good. <laughs> I was talking to someone recently about how, as a, as a parent of teenagers, you know, their emotional experiences are much more limited. They haven't been alive long enough. And so when something happens, it creates big, gigantic emotions yes. sometimes. Whereas yes. for adults, well, I have a lot more emotional experience. So my waves of emotional, like the pool of my emotional experience has smaller waves. And so with a character who's had a number of really wide-reaching experiences and has seen the world both internal and external to fall in love creates a bunch of different waves that must be difficult for some characters to grapple with even when they've experienced a lot because it's still you know love is still so incredibly big and complicated and scary no matter when you encounter it yes Yes, I, I do. The one thing I, I always try to emphasize when I'm writing young characters is that even though they lack experience, nevertheless, their feelings are very, very real and, and should never be belittled. Um, you know, puppy love yes. is a terrible insult yes. to a young person. Um, you know, you'll get over it. <laughs> That's a terrible insult to a young person. And uh, so I do try to keep that in mind when I'm writing a young per- young character, that their feelings are just as real, just as powerful as the feelings of an older person. Yes. M- m- more so in many ways, because as, as you were saying, they lack the experience to realize that life is like this. Yeah. And down the whole way through, and you, you just learn to go with the flow, or at least you um, you learn better how to yes. go with the flow. Yes. And in your books, your characters often have relationships with people who are older or younger than them. They don't exist exist in solitude, so they they interact with characters who have their own depth of experience as well. Yes. And this is especially true of a family series where the family spans, you know, newborn babies right up to aged grandparents. Of course. Claudia wanted to know, you did a recent post on secondary characters speaking to you. And you mentioned earlier that, you know, you you intend for certain characters to to have their own stories and then another character will appear and and develop and you'll want to write a book for them as well. And so a series gets bigger and bigger. 
And she really wanted to know more about that. How does that happen? What moves that? How do those stories take shape? Is it different every time? Yes, it is different every time. Um, just to give you one recent example, my, my, the last book that was out was a summer, not a summer, Someone to Remember. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was actually a novella, but it was published as a, as a full book. And the heroine of that is 56 years old. So is the hero. Uh, they're both 56. Now, when she was created at the beginning of the Westcott series, she was created as a, a sort of cardboard character. She was the stereotypical um, aging spinster, the one who had stayed single in order to look after her mother into her old age. She was fussy, always fussing over her mother and driving her crazy. She was always going into her bag to get out smelling salts and worrying about drafts coming through doors. She was a stereotype, a cardboard figure. I should have been ashamed of myself to create her, but I mean, some characters have to be that way. But the the series has grown and she's in each book. And as the (laughs) books went along, she became more of a person to me. And particularly in the book... Hmm, someone to, which one would it have been? Where she, someone to honor, where she meets the, uh, the, the man she had been in love with as a young girl and had not married him because her parents disapproved. And he'd married and had children and had mistresses and had an illegitimate son who is the hero of someone to honor. And she meets him again in that book. And um, then, of course, it was too late for me. I mean, obviously, I couldn't leave her as this fussy old spinster. She had to have a story of her own, uh, which she got in, in someone to remember. So that's how it happened with her. It just grew on me. And uh, another book in the series, Someone to Care, um, the, the hero of that book has two, has twin um, children, a, a boy and a girl. They're 17 years old in his book. But, of course, the book, they get older as the books go on. They're not Westcott's. They're not part of the series. But by the time I came to the end of the series, I really, really wanted to tell their stories. And I've actually started on one of them now. It's not literally part of the Westcott series, but it's a, it's a spin-off. And her brother, her twin brother, will get his story, too, if I should live so long. Um, so, so that's how it comes with minor characters. They are created for a, a specific purpose in one book, with no intention of being, of having stories of their own. But they grow, and I get interested in them and want to know, want to know and grow their stories. And it sounds like you create pe- people in your in your characters that you come to care about. Yes. And come to know, I come to know them not just as characters who've been put in there for a reason, but as people. Yes, and then I want to continue with them. Claudia also noticed that there's a a theme of found family that makes its way through this series, particularly within the Westcots. Is there something unique about the Westcots that has created so many books and so many characters? Well, I did create it as um, an eight-part series, which has now developed into a nine-part series with, uh, with the writing of Someone to Remember. Um, because, I think because it's family and involves so many people, and each time one of them meets someone and marries them, more characters come into the, uh, the story, like the, like the twins, for example. Um, and then I think it grows... I'll tell you another reason, which I've never mentioned before, but I'll mention it now. Um, I've come more or less to the end of of the series, and normally I would be starting to think up a new series. But I'm not young any longer. I'm an elderly person. I, I really don't want to contemplate planning another lengthy series. I would much rather write spin-offs of a series already in existence. And since I've got interesting characters that I want to continue with anyway, um, those are my plans for the next while. Uh, Rather than say, okay, that's the end of that. Now I'm going to start something totally new. 
I don't know if I ever will, but, you know, that's one, one reason. Well, that I'm makes a lot of sense. To, uh, yes, I'm have... reluctant to plan something new and not have a chance to finish it, finish, this, to finish another series. I can understand that. And I also know that right now, readers want to spend time in familiar worlds because the world that we yes. live in is, is uh, mentally exhausting every day. Yes, and, this, this is very true. And so being able to re-enter a family and have a new story with characters that they know and they care about is incredibly comforting right now. I, I wrote an article for the Washington Post about how many people are rereading familiar books because yes. they just they don't have the cognitive energy to reconstruct a whole new world in their brains. And so for readers, having a familiar community to re-enter and be with is deeply comforting. And I can imagine among your readership, very much appreciated. So, you know, you can make up new children, as many as you need. We give, go for it. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I don't want to go into a next generation because I don't really want to go into a wholly new historical period. But any, anything that arises out of this particular uh, generation is, uh, is probably what I'll be dealing with for a while anyway. So do you have themes that you notice as you've reread some of your older books and are writing new ones? Do you notice themes that work in your writing that you didn't recognize when they were being composed initially? Uh, it's a tough question. I, I apologize. I tend to I'd have to think about it, but I would tend to say no. What does happen, I find, with my books, and, and it happens with almost all my books, is that I discover a theme as I'm going along, and sometimes it's, it's very close to the end of a book. I realize close to the end of a book what this book has been all about, and it's only now becoming clear to me. And sometimes it means going back and re, reshaping a little bit so that it's a bit more smooth and perhaps obvious. Mm -hmm. um, but it tends to be book by book, and I, I can't remember looking back on books. I don't think, and, and realizing themes that I hadn't recognized at the time. I, that's an interesting question, though. I'll have to think about that now afterwards. <laughs> I think it's so. I, I, I imagine it's very common to get to the end of the book and realize, oh, that's what this book is about. That's what yes. you people are doing. Oh, well, well, thank you yes. for telling me now. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that's, that's right. It's, a, it's actually a nice moment. I, I call it the eureka moment when everything clicks together and uh, it doesn't happen with every book, but it happens quite frequently towards the end. You suddenly realize what, what it's all about. So what are you working on now, if I may ask, if you can talk about it? Um, well, I've just started a book. I just started on July the 1st and it is the book about the, uh, the, 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 uh, one of these twins from the Westcott story, um, brother and sister. They are. They were seventeen when they, when they first appeared in the Westcott series. They're twenty five now. So I'm telling her story first. She's uh, you know twenty five is quite an advanced age for a for a woman uh, in those days. It's not for a man. So he can wait for a while. But I'm telling her story first. You have a, a writing schedule that you keep? I do. When I work on a book, I work mornings every day, seven days a week until wow. it's finished. I, I used to work five days a week and take the weekends off, but then I found more and more Monday mornings were hell because <sighs> I'd have to think my way all the way back into that book, and it wasn't easy. I find it a lot easier if I write every day, and I, I, I aim for 2,000 words a day. But um, that's only when I'm actually writing. A lot of the time I'm going back and revising and rewriting. By the time I come to the end of a book, I've probably read it through about 200 times and changed and rewritten it and smoothed it out as I go. So it's either 2,000 words a day or it's revising. And I try to write about 30,000 words a month so that I can finish a book uh, in just a little over three months and finish it completely within four months. That's my, the general pattern. 
Do you always write in the same place or do you have any rituals around your writing or is it the writing is happening now and here's where I am, so let's do this? I like to write in the summer. We, we have two homes, one in the city and one out in a uh, country town. And I like to write in the summer out in the country town because we have, um, we have a, a porch, a, a veranda, a deck outside mm-hmm. and it's screened in, no mosquitoes. Very and, important. Uh, we practically live out there during the summer, and I like to do my writing out there. Uh, if the weather is chilly or it's not suitable to be out there, I write inside um, in, a, in an armchair looking out a picture window at the front of the house. I like, to, I like to see the outdoors when I'm writing. I like to feel that connection. I don't write very much. I don't like writing in the winter. We, we have a, a condo in the winter, and I... For some reason, it's not quite conducive to writing, as far as I'm concerned. So I'm a summer writer, uh, including a bit of the spring and a bit of the fall, but um, generally a summer writer, not a winter writer. That is really interesting. Do you have specific tools that you always use? Not really. I just just have my little laptop and... uh, my day calendar beside me and my yellow pad where on which I list names and place names of characters and, and places as I go, and um, that's about it. With the Westcots, have you developed a sort of a, a, a series guide for yourself so you keep everyone straight? I have a, a, a book in, in which when I finish the book, I write all the character and place names. And I do have a couple of sheets of paper stuck in there, which I I made when I started the series, really, with some vague character and place descriptions. But most of it is carried around in my head, which gets a little crowded at times. um, (laughs) And if, if I do need details, then I just go back to the relevant book and find them. Sometimes I forget there eye color or, you know, some, some essential information like that and have to go back and find out. But, um, no, it's, it's a very uncomfortable way to write. I wouldn't recommend it to any other writer, but it's just, <laughs> it's just what works for me. Oh, whatever works is what you go with, right? Yes, yes. Uh, my window in my office overlooks my neighbor's house and they recently had their siding power washed and so I sat down to work and I realized that they had power washed all of the interesting dirt patterns that I used to oh, stare at. And I was oh, like, right. you took away my, my designs, y'all. <laughs> I was really inspired by the moss and the mold and all these swirls and now they're gone. Oh. I hadn't even realized how much what I look at, you know, just sort of calms my brain a little bit. <laughs> yes, yes. And just the familiarity of it sometimes. Uh, more than anything else yes <laughs> mm-hmm. it grounds you yeah. yes and it's that always that view from your veranda with the screens that that you know you, yes. you you're seeing this the seasons and nature change but it's still the same trees and the same view that's right yes now regency fan um on my patreon asked me to tell you a a, a compliment that you were the first romance author where they realized this book that I liked was written by the same person who wrote this other book that I like, and you became her first auto auto borrow from the library and then an auto buy author. And I, I love that as a compliment. And I know so many readers who the minute they see your name are like, Oh, well, I'm buying this. Do you still hear from, from readers that are auto buy for your, for your books that are excited to see your name on the, on a new cover? Yes. Yes, there are lots of readers like that. It's always actually a thrill if I hear from readers who say, I've just discovered you. I, you know, I've read this book and I love it and I'm going to find another one. And I think, well, well. <laughs> I hope you enjoy that too. But that is a lovely compliment. I know as a reader that I love to discover a new author, that, you know, to read a book by someone I haven't read before and absolutely love the book. And then I almost hold my breath when I find another book by that same author saying, please, please, please be as good as the last ones that I can say I love this author. And sometimes it happens. Sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes it's just that one book from the author that I like and nothing else. And that's very disappointing. But it is lovely to to discover um, an author and, and, and 
realise that you 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 will enjoy just about everything that they've written. It's a lovely feeling, it and I really love that is. as a compliment. I'm very glad to hear that from, from your reader. Oh, it it is it is my favorite thing to introduce someone to an author and then know that there's so many books by that writer yes. that they can go enjoy. I, I mean. You, you do have quite a backlist. You probably could fill a swimming pool and people could jump into it with all of your books. <laughs> Don't do that. Don't throw them into the water. No, no. Empty <laughs> swimming pool. Then you might get paper cuts. It wouldn't be good. <laughs> right. Now, I know that you don't necessarily have much of a say in the intricacies of cover art. But because you are such a long-published historical romance author and because historical romance has changed the way it looks so much. I'm curious about your your perspective. Your latest covers have women in these beautiful, opulent, lush settings. They're gorgeous. An earlier, yeah. uh, earlier series started with men and then transmi- transitioned into images of women by themselves. What do you think of how historical romance has changed from your covers and other covers? Um, Well, I could tell you the story between that transition from the men on the covers early in the series and the women later. Yes. Um, My publisher at the time started to put these men on the covers, the men in the generic white shirt, which is open down to the navel and a waxed chest underneath (laughs) it, all muscle. I I just freaked out. I hated them. I ranted and raved. I wept. Uh, you know, my, the publisher knew that I was really just about hysterical over these covers, and they would not change them. They, they insisted that they wanted to appeal to a younger audience with, a, with sexy covers. Um, and I came to the end of my contract, and I moved to a different publisher purely for that reason. No, I could really? Not, I, could, I could not stand those covers. I used to get my free copies. And I wouldn't give them away to anyone. I didn't want anyone to see that cover and think that I'd written that book. So, yes, I moved to a different publisher, and I've been with them ever since. I, I absolutely adore them. And right from the, from the get-go, I was given full cover consultation. Mm-hmm. Um, I send in my ideas for what I want on a cover, um, they produce a cover and show it to me. And if there are some things I'm not too keen on, I'll, I'll ask for a change. I try, try not to be prima donna-ish about it. But, you know, I'll ask for a slight change or a tweak here and they'll do it. And I love it. Um, one other comment I'll make on historical covers is that um, most histor- historical um, romances also tend to be Regency romances. And yet the fashion now is for women with larger and larger skirts, enormous skirts, covering and billowing over the whole cover. This is the Regency folks. <laughs> you know, with, with the glorious Grecian lines and clinging skirts, very, very feminine and attractive and sexy. And yet, no, they have to have these billowing skirts, which incidentally are totally unhistorical for any era I know of. There is no historical era where women wore those skirts, except for the crinoline skirts of the 18th century or the late Victorian, mm-hmm. uh, which were, were different altogether. So I, I really... I can't say I hate those covers. Some of them look very attractive, but I despise them. You know, if you're writing an historical book, well, at least have the cover match that historical period if you want the reading public to take romance seriously. I'm I'm sorry, I'm on my soapbox here, but um, (laughs) I do feel strongly about covers, and I love my own. Um, And those... Those men covers, oh, yuck. I hated them. I hate, hate, hated them. I have never been a fan of the waxed man chest either, so hearing you talk about it made me laugh so hard. (laughs) And the generic shirt. Why is it always the same shirt? Do they only have the one shirt? 
I'd probably. probably. <laughs> all these heroes, they have one shirt. I remember yeah. ages and ages ago, all of the heroes were headless. Like it was just from yeah. the neck down. And I used to imagine all the heads like getting together in a support group and, and being like, I was on a really good cover, but then off went my head. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. So with the, with the books that you're re- reissuing, with the beautiful striped covers and the silhouettes, do you have a say in those as well? Are you involved in the design? Because they're wonderfully eye-catching and they thematically yes, they work are. together. Yes. They're wonderful. It's my, my agent. It's her uh, publishing company. She set up the company for my e-books. Um, and we discussed covers and a few ideas tossed around. And I suggested silhouettes. On the cover, but I was picturing the black silhouette, you know, mm-hmm. and um, that the whole thing sort of grew. And I think they found someone who was willing to do that sort of cover, but I can't, I think it was Maria herself who suggested the pastel uh, covers with these sort of stripy, slightly stripy background. Mm-hmm. And I don't know who suggested the, uh, the emblems that also go on the covers. Very often they're a flower, though not always. Mm-hmm. And uh, the, the silhouettes themselves are not, are not always black. But when we put it all together on a few covers, I just loved it. And, um, I, you know, kudos to the cover maker uh, who manages to come up with something a little different each time for each book. But I love them. And they're easily recognizable. And I think that's important when you're reissuing old books. I think readers appreciate that. I do as a reader, to be able to see a cover and say, oh, there's another of so-and-so's books, mm-hmm. because I recognize that that cover. So it must be one of hers. And you look, and sure enough, it is. And I think that's important. Yes. And, so, and yeah, the visual... I, I love those covers. Oh, they're wonderful. And the visual ties mm. them together. The minute I see one, I'm like, oh, that's going to be a reissued Regency. Better grab that one. Yes. Good. I'm, I'm glad that it's working, that concept, the concept itself and the recognizability. Oh, yes. Do you, do you like the cover for Someone to Romance? Am I allowed to ask? Um, I like it. I don't love it. Yeah. Uh, I was a little disappointed. I, I, um, it, it had on it all the elements that I had asked for, and I, I, I really don't hate it. But I think of it as the, as the quarantine cover. And I know it's, it's incredibly difficult for publishers these days to, to manage everything, to produce a cover. And when I had it, I was given, very unusually, I was given a block of about 20 different versions of this cover. Oh, my. And, and I sort of sensed anxiety. You know, what is she going to say about these covers? And uh, I chose, you know, I I wasn't thrilled about any of them. They weren't quite the way I had visualized it. But I was not going to ask for wholesale changes. So I chose one I liked and Mm -hmm. asked if it could be melded with another one I like, you know, a little bit of this and a little bit of that. And it turned out, I, I heard anxiety in the reply, it wasn't really workable, or at least not without wholesale changes. I said, fine, just, you know, and... They suggested something, I suggested something, and we came up with that. So it's, it's my quarantine cover. I like it. I do <laughs> like it. But I'm not wildly in love with it, as I have been with a few of my covers. Which are some of your favorites? Do you have a favorite Westcott cover? Um, oh, I love, the, I love the cover of Someone to Care. To me, it's very... Um, Oh, romantic is a very weak word. No, it is. It has so much movement, the way her dress is billowing behind her. Yes. And almost a suggestion of mist in the hills and that lovely house, which is much too elaborate for the cottage in the book. I actually think think I went back to the book and adjusted the appearance of the cottage to match the cover a bit better than it did, because I loved the cover so much. But yeah, I think that probably is my favorite. Although I do, I, I like the first one, Someone to Love. I love that cover in which a graveyard had to be taken out. <laughs> it's oh. a picture of a church with a, with a churchyard and the, the lich gate. And the graves were actually in the original uh, 
And I said, you know, mm, do you think this is really good? They have the grave, the gravestones in here, so they took them out. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but I love that cover. I think for similar reasons. I love her dress and the way, it, the, the, the movement it has. Yes. So I many. love all the covers. I like them all. I don't hate any of them or even, you know, the, the, the most blah one is the final one as far as I'm concerned. It's a little bit blah, but it's okay. I also love the richness of the purple in someone to remember with her yes. hat and her coat. I am a sucker for jewel tones, but wow, that's a beautiful cover. It is. Now, unfortunately, the story itself um, it's very specific about that scene that she is wearing a pale blue outfit. It's, <laughs> it's part of the story. But I thought, oh, <laughs> I like that purple and I really couldn't change the story. So I just hope nobody would notice. <laughs> Some readers have noticed, yes. But yes, I love the purple too. I always ask this question What are you reading that you might like to tell people about? Um, well, there's one series that I haven't strangely read before, and it's, it's just what you were describing a little while ago. It's this total comfort read. Um, I'm reading um, the, the Virgin River series. Oh, um, that, is, that is grade A comfort reading. Yes, it is, and I haven't read them before, and they're great books. And there are lots of them, so it's going to be a while before I get to the end of them. So I'm really, really, you know, thank you, Robin Carr. I'm really, really um, relaxing with that series. Although I must mention a book that I just read yesterday and the day before, which absolutely wowed me. I love this book. It's um, Elizabeth Berg's um, A Man Called, oh dear, what is it? Is it the A Man Called Ove? No, it's not that. I have read that and loved that book too, but that this isn't that book. It's Is it the story of Arthur Truelove? Yes. Uh, yes, I was just finding it, but you found it before I did. Yes. Glorious book. I just loved it. I just finished it last night. And now I haven't read any of her other books, and she has quite a lot, I see. So I'm going to be trying something else of hers. Oh, that's wonderful. Yes. So I loved that one, but generally I keep drifting back and forth to the to the Robin Carr series and just enjoying all those all those books. They are they are incredible comfort reads. They are. They have such lovely, um, particularly the heroes, such wonderful heroes. They're all too good to be true, but who cares? And lovely heroines too, and because they all appear in all of the books, and it's it's lovely. I love it. Well, it's, it's like we were talking of earlier, the ability to re-enter a community and visit with familiar characters is wonderfully comforting. It is. It really is. Yes. You, you feel you belong there almost as if you can leave your own world for the moment and step into this. And sometimes when they're getting too close together for some reason, or if they're all in Jack's bar there, they go, no, no, you mustn't get too close to one another. <laughs> realize, no, really. I really do find this happening. I do too. This COVID mentality is... Um, Why are you in a bar? You shouldn't be in a bar. Yes. <laughs> or, or if you are, you should be socially distanced. So where are your masks, people? Yes, I have the same problem. I was watching a TV it's show. Horrible, and like, yes. All these people are too close together and it's really crowded yeah. and I'm very uncomfortable. <laughs> I know, I know. It's really horrid, this effect it's having on us. But, um, anyway, it is lovely to escape. It is, and it really when is. You re- when you realize you, that they, they're allowed to get close together, you think, okay, all right. Yeah, it's almost like uh, the rules of historical engagement where you can't really go off by yourself or be alone or too close to someone now. <laughs> they, appear, yes. they apply now, too. Yes, that's right. Well, thank you so much for doing this interview with me. I really, really appreciate your time. Oh, you're very welcome. I enjoyed it. I, I, you sent me the questions this morning and I read through them. And I thought, oh, lovely. These are good questions. Oh, thank you. I appreciate yeah. that. Yes, I enjoyed answering them. And that brings us to the end of this week's episode. Thank you again to everyone who made 
excellent contributions with questions and enthusiasm for this episode. And thank you again to Brittany Black for making this possible. And most of all, to Mary Balog for hanging out and chatting with me so I could really, really, really keep my inner 13-year-old under control. Barely managed it. You can find all of Mary Balog's books and her blog at her website, maryballog.com. I will have info and links in the show notes at smartbitchestrashybooks.com slash podcast. I know we talked about a lot of books. Don't worry. They will all be there. You can click and read and download to your heart's content. Also, a quick tip for you. Many of the Mary Balog re-releases of her older Regencies are part of the Hoopla digital collection. So if your library subscribes to Hoopla, you should be able to access many of her titles, including Truly, through that collection. This episode was brought to you by Crushing It by Lorelai Parker. This romantic comedy from a debut author combines humor, second chances, and learning that the key to love can be found in first loving oneself. To pitch her new role-playing game at a European conference, Sierra Reed needs to overcome her terror of public speaking. So, what better way than to compete in a local bar's diary slam, regaling an audience with old journal entries about her completely humiliating college crush on gorgeous Tristan Spencer. This is a great idea, until the moderator says, next up, Tristan Spencer. Uh Uh-oh. This book is perfect for fans of Christina Lauren and Sally Thorne. Crushing It by Lorelai Parker is available now wherever books are sold. Find out more at kensingtonbooks.com. This podcast is also brought to you by Feels. If you have been experiencing some stress, anxiety, or maybe having trouble sleeping, hello, yes, that is me, heads up, I have something to tell you about. I pay a lot of attention to the sleep that I get because sleep has a tremendous influence on my daily life, and I have learned of a new option to help me get really good sleep, which, if you don't know, is my favorite thing. It's called Feels. Feels is premium CBD oil that is delivered directly to your doorstep. Feels will naturally help reduce stress, anxiety, and sleeplessness. Feels is easy to take. The thing about CBD is that finding your right dose is important, and everyone's dose is different. So if you leave about a week of time to experiment, you will be able to figure out exactly how much is the right dose for you. And if you're new to CBD oil, Feels offers real human support. There is a free CBD hotline to help you out. I have been using it for over a week. I figured out my dosage very easily, and after dropping some under my tongue before bed, I fall asleep easier, and I have really deep, good sleep. Feels has helped me feel my best every day, and it can help you too. Become a member today by going to feels.com slash trashybooks, and you will get 50% off your first order with free shipping. That's F-E-A-L-S dot com slash trashybooks to become a member and get 50% automatically taken off your first order with free shipping. Feels.com slash trashybooks. Thank you again to our Patreon community for being wonderful and for making this episode a collaborative success. I deeply appreciate your enthusiasm and questions. If you would like to join the Patreon community, have a look at patreon.com slash smartbitches. Monthly pledges begin at one whole entire dollar per month, and every pledge makes every episode accessible to everyone. Thank you. Thank you so much for your consideration and your support. All right, are you ready? I think it's two jokes this time. You ready? Here we go. First joke. <clears throat> Why is justice a dish best served cold? Why? Why is justice a dish best served cold? Because if it were served warm, it would be just water. <laughs> so dumb. I love it. When my kids were at camp, I used to send them Overwatch jokes, and um, that was related to one of them. I liked that very much. I have a second joke. It's a little bit more serious. <clears throat> serious podcaster voice. An epidemiologist, a scientist, and a doctor walked into a bar. Just kidding. They know better than that. <laughs> so, on that note, please wear a mask and look out for yourselves and the people around you, especially your loved ones. I hope that you and yours are safe and sound. And I thank you again for inviting me into your eardrums. As always, I wish you the very best of reading. Have a wonderful weekend, and I will see you back here next week. Smart Podcast Trashy Books is part of the Frolic Podcast Network. You can find more outstanding podcasts to subscribe to at frolic.media slash podcasts.